Welcome to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher. Today's interview was recorded in November 2018 in collaboration with the Vail Public Library and their Valley Voices Oral History Project. One of the people I was fortunate to interview was Pete Seibert, the son of the founding father of Vail, Pete Seibert Sr. Here Pete remembers his father and his father's drive to create a world-class ski resort. He came from New England and started in Sharon, Massachusetts. And he and his childhood friend, Maury Shepard, who was later the first ski school director in Vail, grew up together and they were skiing um, on meadows around Sharon. Uh, Maury had a, a story about my dad going to the neighboring doctor and asking about cutting a few trees down in order to get a better run out of where they were skiing. So that was his first exercise in trail construction. And when he was a teenager, his family moved up to North Conway, New Hampshire. So he was there until, uh, really, until uh, he enlisted in the 10th Mountain Division. And being a skier, uh, he had, they were looking for skiers and alpinists and that sort of thing. You had to have two letters of reference. He may have forged those, I'm not sure, but um, they... They, uh, it was a, it was a pretty amazing group of men that, that was gathered together to, to form the first ski troops for the U.S., uh, modeled after a Norwegian uh, battalion, I think, and and they trained in camp at Camp Hale, which is kind of halfway between here and Leadville. Was this the first time that he'd been to Colorado? That was his first visit to Colorado. Oh. My my grandfather, his dad, had actually passed through here and spent a little time working in the mines up in Leadville, but then it wound up back in New England. So, yeah, Pete was uh, 18 when he enlisted, um, and they trained uh, at, at Camp Hale, did a lot of winter exercises, that sort of thing. And, you know, the ski museum has great footage of those guys skiing in that old gear, which is incredible. I mean, it's yeah. uh, the, the old leather boots with, uh, you know, ankle height. Um, the skis you measured, uh, the right length ski was when you put your 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 hand up as high as you could over your head right and and the tip met the tip of your fingers isn't that amazing i mean in in strapped in with leather yeah <laughs> so yeah no a, safety releases cable on binding, those no real release they could loosen it up so they could climb back up the hill with climbing skins um, their packs were about 90 pounds so they put that on their back and uh, a little later on there was a, a movie made called climb to glory and my son tony was in it and he um, actually went out with two other guys and skied in that gear and came back and said, Dad, they were crazy to ever leave the ground. Uh, because in the footage, these guys are jumping off cornices and doing a lot of uh, pretty amazing yeah. stuff. Um, so anyways, Pete was in the war. Um, he was wounded in Italy, and um, it took about almost two years to recover. When he recovered, he was like a lot of the other 10th Mountain guys, and they went to Aspen. Well, he was seriously wounded, though. Right? Yeah, yeah. He he, had, he lost his kneecap. Um, he had shrapnel that hit him in um, in his chest, just uh, right at his sternum, his forearm, his face. Um, he lost some teeth, that sort of thing. And the the biggest thing was the probably the two things. One was the the wound in in his uh, in his esophagus in that area, and then his kneecap. And the, the, with the kneecap, they just had to remove what was left of it, and that the, the 
practice back then was to put a steel kneecap in. He asked, they said that would give him about a 60% range of motion. His response, which is, this is, tells a lot here, I think. He, his response was, what if I just don't put one in? And they said, well, we've never done that before. It's there for protection. So um, he chose to go with less protection and more yeah. freedom. Because and he was he was uh, going to see his range of motion diminished, diminished to where he really was. You know, it was questionable how how his skiing would go, and that was his concern. Ah, yeah. He... So <laughs> so that was that was the primary thing, and and he thought, you know, what the heck, I can, you know, if it really is as bad as they claim, then I'll go get it done. But um, he spent the rest of his life without his kneecap. Uh, you know, they told him, uh, so this would have been probably 1947 or uh, halfway through 47. They said, well, okay, fine, you can try this, but we can't guarantee that you'll be walking, you know, in a few years. Um, and by 1950, he was on the United States uh, World Championship ski team. Um, the World Championships that have been held in, in Vail and Beaver Creek three times now. Uh, the first time in the States was in Aspen in 1950. Wow. So he was on that team. That was grit, wasn't it? I mean, I, yeah. the the courage that that took. I mean, not knowing what what faced him. Exactly, and and they, you know, I mean, they they. I think it was all part of that experience. Here he's he's 19 years old after after a year of training. He's a, becomes a master sergeant, and he's got 40 men that that he's in charge of, and and they're in combat. Um, so when those guys got out and he got back here, they. I think he thought he told me he thought that everything was a bonus. You yeah, know, after probably. What seen. Probably, yeah. Living without a kneecap was probably the least of his worries after surviving Riva Ridge in, in yeah. Italy. Yeah, all of that. You know, it's just uh, it is an amazing story, and it's uh, those that whole group of men that that really built the ski industry in in the United States, and they they most ski areas. If you if you go back. To the beginnings, there were Tenth Mountain guys involved, and and really all over the place. Um, so Pete wound up in Aspen with a lot of those guys. Uh, worked on the mountain. Uh, he was my mom's ski instructor. Huh. Um, he was a patrolman, ski patrolman in, in on Aspen Mountain. Uh, there's a trail on Aspen Mountain called Cyberts. That's what I. One of the things I love about that is that next to it is Knowlton's, and Steve Knowlton was in the Tenth Mountain Division and was a great friend of my dad. So that those two are together, wow. you know, on into the future. That's which a is great story. Pretty cool. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories program. My interview today is with Vailtown Councilman Peter Seibert, Jr. Pete's talking about his dad, Peter Seibert, Sr., and his dad's involvement in World War II as a member of the 10th Mountain Division. After the war, Pete's dad moved to Aspen and got a job at Aspen Highlands. Um, Pete went to work over at, um, at Aspen Highlands for Whip Jones when they opened that ski area. And they... Uh, he was the mountain manager over there. I went, uh, I remember as a kid going to the 20th anniversary of the Aspen Ski Corp, and they gave Pete a, 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 an award uh, for sneaky Petedness. And I think what it came <laughs> from was they needed a, a rope tow at Aspen Highlands, and Darcy Brown over at uh, Aspen Mountain was getting rid of one. And they never would have sold it to Whip Jones or Pete Seibert, but my dad found a third party to go over and buy it. And then when he got it on the truck, he just took a quick left as he drove out of town. Wow. So, um, 
And then, you know, they, he spent time in Aspen, started looking around for places to, to build the ski area, wanted to be in Colorado, went, looked in Silverton, looked at Telluride, um, a, a lot of different places. And there was always something that was a little difficult. You know, you had to find the right combination of proximity to an airport, proximity to a, a, a city, you know, really Denver, if you're going to be in Colorado, uh, had to have enough snow, had to have enough size private land at least at the base of the mountain they couldn't afford to buy the whole mountain but they could lease the mountain from the forest service have the private land at the bottom to build the village uh the time he spent in 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 europe he actually i left out the he when he was healed up before he went to aspen he did go to hotel school for a couple of years in lausanne in switzerland and so he spent time over there and really got to see the the classic Alpine villages like Zermatt, that sort of thing. So he rounded out his sense of what a resort would look like. What it should he, look like, and and um, and and also got a sense of service and and what the you know the Europeans thought service was, right. and, and wanted to bring that to the ski area as well. Um, so he was looking around the state. Uh, he had worked with Earl Eaton. Earl. Um, decided, uh, or Earl was up on Vail Mountain, I think uh, uranium prospecting is the way I heard it. And when he uh, got to the top of the mountain and look, saw the back bulls, he decided he better go get my dad and uh, wow. go take a look. So how were they, how did they know one another? They, uh, Earl was a little bit younger and had worked uh, building Camp Hale, but was not in the ski troops. Then he had wound up in Aspen after the war as well. So that's really where they got to know each other. And, and Earl had patrolled over there with my dad and that sort of thing. So he, he went and got, got Pete. They, it took him, uh, I think, something on the order of six hours to skin up the mountain. And they wound up at the top of Ptarmigan Ridge. Can you imagine uh, going up the mountain in those old all that old gear boots and old gear breaking trail on old uh, you know old lumber roads with nothing around you yeah. know and and the old pictures the Midvale area you know a lot of it was gladed and and uh, it it really I, I think I'm sure it just struck him as as this is an incredible piece of skiing right here it was not as steep as as the classic ski areas as the ones that were established then. Um, you know, in the 1958, 1960, you had Stowe, you had um, Aspen Highlands, Aspen Mountain, um, Bald Mountain up in Sun Valley, Alta. They're all steep mountains. And uh, that was one of the knocks when they got going and uh, that they, the Vail would be too, it was too flat and wouldn't be, uh, uh, wouldn't be a success. Turned out to be one of its strongest points. What did, what did your dad tell you? What was his story about when he first saw the back bowl? I think it, it, it the, the expanse of it um, and the knowledge that, that he could put one chairlift, they could, he and Earl could get one chairlift in back there and serve sun up and sundown bowl all, you know, right there, just boom. And it's an incredible amount of terrain to open up with just one lift. And, and then, the, you know, they had the question about, well, how's the snowfall? So the, at the end of that day, they went down to Minturn and uh, the closest town, went into the Williams Cafe, and they got something to eat. And my dad asked the waitress uh, if it snowed much around here. <laughs> and, and the waitress looked at him and said, honey, sometimes it snows so much it's downhill to Leadville. 
<laughs> but we are. What's amazing is we're in this little pocket here. Um, the storms, the orographic lifting, the the storms back up on the Gore Range and have to dump that moisture before they can go over. Um, so it, it really is a, a great pocket, and we benefit from that all the time. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories Program, and my guest Peter Seibert has just described how his father, Peter Seibert Sr., searched for and found what is now known as Vail Mountain. Now that he had the search for the mountain over, he had to go search for people who believed in the project as much as he did. They had the mountain. Well, now he has to go find somebody that believes in much, as much as he does in it. How did, exactly. how did he do that? He so, must have been good with, with people because he had to go sell it, right? He, sell was the a, idea. he was a salesman, and he was great with people. He was a... Uh, you know, I think that the, the, there's so much in this story that uh, is is about the enthusiasm and the, the he used to say we never did a, a focus group, <laughs> we just knew it would work, <laughs> and and it's true. And and they right. you know they they started out with a small group and formed the Transmontane Rod and Gun Club, which was the entity that bought the the, the sheep ranches at the base of the mountain. When tell tell that story why did they have to do it that way well they they were afraid if they came in and and told everybody they were starting a ski area that the the land the prices would just be out of reach and um it, it took them a while to convince the, the uh, guys to sell the the sheep herders the katso's family and katipas and and my dad used to go come up and sit on their deck the old circle k building is now at the bus stop it's a it's a cabin that's at the bus stop in eastvale and that that's where he'd go, and, and the Katipuses would be, they'd come out of the Gore Range having got up at four in the morning and checked on the herd. And then they're having a, a you know, a, a kind of a long lunch at the end of their work day. And the Uzo would come out and they'd sit and talk and, and uh-huh. uh, get their way around, you know, well, what can we buy this land for? Um, and that's why you have Uzo uh, named what it is in, in Game Creek. Uh-huh. Um, so these things all sort of tie yeah. together. Yeah. Um, they, uh, but they probably didn't warm to him right right away. I mean, who is this guy and what is he up to? Is right, it took attitude. him some time. Right. Yeah, and I think it helped that Earl was part of the deal because uh, you know Earl grew up in Squaw Creek, and so he was uh-huh. a local guy. And when they eventually did sell, uh, there's just another story about one of the ranchers that you know the sheep guys were up at this end of the valley, and the cattle ranchers were in eagle and and one of the cattle guys telling the the you know giving the sheep rancher uh grief for taking advantage of the denver guys uh-huh. um so they, they got a good price for the land at the time uh-huh. um and then the next step was to get the forest service permit paul hauk was the the ranger that was in charge right. of forest service at the time i, I think i guess it would have been white river uh national forest and 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 he uh originally turned it down uh, because they they felt as though there were you know you had Berthed you had Loveland um, Aspen um, he just uh, Paul thought that they dilute the, the things and that nobody would survive because there just wouldn't be enough business for everybody and this again you have to look at it as you know 1958 right and uh, things were changing but they hadn't changed yet well skiing really was only ten years old if that and yeah as an as a so business what what are, yeah. Now, when we have the hind, the benefit of hindsight, we think, well, that would be a crazy to overlook that. But uh, skiing was was just something that a few people did 
at least in the minds of others. So Paul Houck was going, well, there's not a market for it. Yeah, there's just not enough. You guys will start all this and then it'll fall apart. And, you know, I'm saving you the, the grief. Um, uh, it, it, they were persistent. Uh, one of the things that I love about, and I think is another telling uh, part of the story, is that when they wrote that application for the, for the Forest Service permit, it included Blue Sky, what's now Blue Sky Basin. I mean, they stood, they stood up on Ptarmigan Ridge, and they went as far out as they could because they didn't know when they'd get there, but they thought, man, if we can get all the way over there, we really have something. And they were looking at, at, at uh, European models where things right. were, were much bigger. You know, it'd be nice if people looked at it that way now. Well, and he, he it probably, <laughs> yeah, it's probably a, a, a real benefit to have been in uh, Europe and seen those resorts to know the scale. Yeah, absolutely. And Earl, I mean, Earl never lost that. My dad didn't either. My dad, the last thing that he did was, was to try to find a good downhill because it, we had the international races here when I was a kid. So it was Jean-Claude Keeley and, and Carl Schrantz and Billy Kidd and Jimmy Hugo. Wow. Um, you're dropping some names. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> yeah, you have to be older if you're going to appreciate them truly. Well, but you were, yeah, <laughs> you were you were hanging with some of the the icons. The, they, it was of the a, day. it was great. You know, Buddy Werner was was the was the big guy, and and I got to meet him at the nationals at Winter Park. My dad brought me over in '64, and they'd had the Olympics in Innsbruck that winter, and and Kid and Hugo had had gotten medaled in the uh, slalom, so that was the Americans were on a real roll. Um, they wanted one of the things my dad wanted to do to get Vail put on the map was to get a big race going here too. There'd been the the Harriman Cup up in Sun Valley. It was the Roche Cup in in uh, Aspen. My dad won it once and got second once. And he told me later. He said, you know, he was kind of glad that the second time around it was a second place because if he'd won it a, a second time, he would have broken his neck trying to win it a third. <laughs> But all that without a kneecap. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's um, amazing. But they, they, um, they, so what they did was they, there wasn't a World Cup yet. And uh, the, the European racers would come and they'd race in the Roach Cup, uh, maybe the Harriman Cup. And, and um, I think there's a race back at Stowe. Uh, when they came here, we started, they, they started what they called the international races. And, and I just remember as a kid, the women's and men's team would all converge here. And we'd have Italians and Canadians and French and German, um, Swiss, U.S. Uh, Germ uh, I mentioned Germans probably. Uh -huh. uh, Austrians, excuse me. So that was the big one was the Austrians because of Karl Schrantz. And, the, and there weren't enough accommodations. So the racers stayed with people. We always had Swiss racers stay with our family. Uh -huh. Friend of mine, uh, Chris Tweedy, his family had the um, the uh, the Austrians there every year. Um, it was an amazing sort of camaraderie that that went that grew out of all that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories program. Peter Seibert is describing how his father, Peter Seibert Sr., birthed his dream of a world-class ski resort, which we now know as Vail. But your dad finally started to get this on on the ground. But I mean, he, was he a detail person? Because no. you're building this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, so, <laughs> we can go into it more. Yeah, yeah. 
But who was? Yeah, well, you needed I, a detail person. You needed a detail person, and and you know, I um, later in life, I worked with my dad out at Snow Basin out in Utah, and we had a great mountain. It's a great mountain. There was private ground to work with. There were a lot of things that were very similar to what um, it was after my dad left the ski company here. He'd partnered with Rod Slifer, and I was fresh out of college, really, just a couple of years, and I thought we're going to do this all over again. Um, there are a lot of things about the success of Vail that, that uh, you know, had everything combined the right way. And one of the things that I learned, we worked with great people in Utah, but the group that we had here, that Pete was, had everybody that came in, um, was really extraordinary. And they all shared, shared that vision, shared that dream. Uh, they all knew, too, that they had to be successful. Everyone had to, if the place was going to be a success, um, if their own business was going to be a success, their neighbor's business had to be successful, too. There had to be enough good restaurants for someone to want to stay. There had to be enough good hotels. There had to be, and so everybody worked together. There was a, a collaboration there, and you know, one of the things that Maury Shepard uh, and everyone used to talk about was the he was the first fire chief. He was also the ski school director, and they would have to have meetings of the metro district and the fire district, and and it was all the same guys. They just they just say, okay, now we're bringing to order the next meeting. Yeah, um, so let me put my different hat on. And- yeah, yeah, and I think you look at uh, how much got built that first summer. Uh, the, the the gondola was the first of its kind. It was a Swiss gondola shipped over bob parker who was really the marketing guy um early on and uh was the person that really got uh colorado ski country usa started uh and in addition to doing doing everything to get veil on the map uh bob had to go to new york to get the uh the shipment of of the gondola cars and grips and so on through customs um, wow. So there were things that nobody saw oh, coming, man. and they just said, "Okay, what do we need to do to get this done? Let's go do it." Um, you know, so early, I, I don't know that there was one detail person, but there were a lot of people that that picked up what needed to be done. And and you know, with Earl uh, getting these lifts built, you had the gondola that had to be built, you had the restaurant at Midvale, you had a double lift, the riblet double at the chair four that goes to the top of the mountain, and then the double on the backside on chair five. They spliced the cable for chair five at the very top of forever, just as you go into the trees. Uh, you, you pull tension on the big cable, get some slack so the splicer can work, and you have it all secure, tied off, or you think you do. Something came loose, and, and the downhill end um, took off, uh, went oh, down the hill so that the, the cable was go, was kind of going into a spaghetti pile at the bottom terminal. It, this is with men working and they're around and everything. It, the the cable came down the hill and wrapped around the cross arm of the next tower and yanked it off its bolts. Oh. So <laughs> then they have to pull all that back together, get it spliced, get it inspected. Oh, man. Know, Nobody, got Nobody got hit. Nobody got hurt. So, uh, you know, it's just... Those sorts of stories. I mean, now when you build a lift, you use a helicopter for the con- to fly concrete and to to, to set towers. Uh, then it was all you had to drive in and 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 have little roads to each tower. But so. your your story about everybody had multiple jobs. Yeah. And some of them came with different roles and had to just set those aside because this different work needed was, to be done. Yeah, you didn't say that's not my my job. That's not my my deal. Uh, yeah, I don't you, do that. Yeah, yeah no. no, you get you had to do whatever. And and I think part of it um 
you know, I brought a, a plaque here today that in 1972 they dedicated the little circle at the top of uh, Bridge Street to my dad, and it calls him the the founder there. I, I think he was the the leader in a lot of ways. But there were, I mean, that was a strong group to be one of the the uh, executives later on um, after my dad had left told me that um, things had changed, that when they had a problem, now the company tended to throw money at it. Uh, back in the day, that my dad would throw people at it. He knew, he'd look around and figure out who was the right person to ask to take on whatever that task might be. And, and, and uh, so that was where one of his strengths, I guess. So he knew, he, all, he probably knew his weaknesses too, didn't he? I mean, he appreciated other people as one of his strengths. And I think part of that was that he knew there were things that he couldn't do. And right. when it came to the business end, he was a skier. He was imaginative. He he had the drive. He had a lot of things that, you know, had he been more analytical, he probably wouldn't have got started because there were too many, too many risks. That was Peter Seibert, remembering his dad, Peter Seibert Sr., and the quest to create a world-class ski resort. The one we now know as Vail, a special thanks to Pete and the Seibert family for all they have done to make skiing and snowboarding a sport that brings families together. Thanks to the Vail Public Library for their efforts to preserve the local history by honoring the local storytellers. To learn more about Vail Public Library, go to vaillibrary.com. You've been listening to the Immigrant Stories Program. To hear or read other stories, go to immigrantstories.net or subscribe online wherever you get your podcasts. And before we go, I'd like to honor the memory of Tony Seibert, Peter Seibert Jr.'s son, who died in an avalanche skiing the East Vale Chutes in 2014 at the age of 24. He is sorely missed. <laughs>